Holy Week. Holy Week is so lovely. It, it, it simultaneously brings us to the heart of the gospel, to the heart, the core of the Christian faith, like the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, it's full of irony, of paradox, of tension. And it's to the, these two things simultaneously it brings us to the, uh, it's only as we press into the ironies and the paradoxes of Holy Week, actually, that we are, we are drawn into the heart of the fullness of the gospel of God's love unleashed in the world to bring about redemption. And these ironies uh, begin on Palm Sunday. Those who hail Jesus as king as he enters into Jerusalem are the same ones who will shout crucify him as he exits just a number of days later. On Monday, Thursday, it's the Lord who, who pours water into rivers and seas that pours water into a basin in order to wash the feet of his disciples, the dirtiest part of them. On Good Friday, it's, it's, it's Jesus who is mocked and tried and, and, and falsely convicted and scourged and crucified and dies this, this humiliating and shameful death. And yet this is the day that we call good. Because somehow the power of God is hidden in the midst of that human weakness. On Holy Saturday, the word who was in the beginning with God and spoke all of creation into existence lays silent in a tomb. And then on Easter Sunday, death, which is the undoing of human life, is itself undone by the resurrection and the life. Now, none of these ironies, none of these paradoxes of Holy Week were things that people expected from Jesus or things that people actually wanted from Jesus. And I think that's as true today as it was in our passage on that day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Expectations ran high. There was a buzz in the city as the crowd swelled and, and centuries of hopes for a long-awaited Messiah seemed to be coming to their moment of fulfillment. But in Jesus, the people on that day encountered the unexpected. They encountered an unexpected power, and they, un and they encountered an unexpected patience. Now, this unexpected power comes in this moment where Jesus is deliberately entering into Jerusalem in this particular way, mounted on a colt, as a demonstration of messianic power. Jesus would have been the talk of the town that day. Coming into Jerusalem, there would have been tons of excitement in the air. People would have heard about this Jesus and had many opinions about what his visit to Jerusalem would mean. I mean, he's been talking about this kingdom of God thing for a few years now. When is he fully going to bring this kingdom to bear on Jerusalem, the holy city of God's holy people where the temple is? And so you could sense that there would have been years of development in the hearts of God's people. When is Jesus going to finally do what he says he's going to do? And Mark is careful to tell us that Jesus takes the initiative. That as Jesus enters into Holy Week, he is firmly in control of all the events and every move that is going to lead him to the cross. And Jesus wants to show his people on this Palm Sunday, in no uncertain terms, that he is the long-awaited messianic king that they have been hoping for. And he wants them to see all of the events of Holy Week, the next seven or eight days, as paradoxical and ironic and surprising and unexpected as they may be, as the actions of an almighty king. 
Now, why is this important? Because over the last three chapters of the Gospel of Mark, before we get to this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus has been teaching his disciples over and over and over again. And he's been trying to teach them that in order to understand his kingship and his authority, they are going to have to redefine it around his suffering and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And the disciples are just having a tough time getting this. They're having a really tough time getting this. Uh, the disciples, James and John, come to Jesus at, at the end of chapter 10, and they say, Jesus, would you do something for us? And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And we'll return to this question later. It's an interesting one that Jesus asks. And James and John say to him, well, we, when you establish your kingdom, like, like all your glory and your power and your dominion, we want to be the people that sit on your right and left hand. In other words, when your kingdom comes, we kind of want to be on top with you. <laughs> That's, that's kind of why we've been following you, Jesus. We, we think that this is going to lead to some good places. So can we have those positions of power and influence at your right and left hand? And, and Jesus, as he responds to them, says, basically, you're not getting it. If you want to be first in my kingdom, you're going to have to be the servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, this is chapter 10, verse 45, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. And the disciples continue to be confounded by this. But I think that's a really important detail that James and John came to Jesus with this request, thinking that his kingdom would give them this position of privilege, power, and influence in the world. Because when we come to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we are told specifically in verse 1, that when they draw near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of, Mount of Olives, Jesus sent only two of his disciples to go fetch the colt. Only two. I think we're talking, Jesus is talking about James and John here. Jesus specifically sends James and John, I think Mark invites us to see in this gospel, to fetch the colt because he is intentionally trying to recalibrate experientially now their expectations of his power and his kingship. He wants them to be tangibly involved in the events of, of Palm Sunday, active participants, not just spectators, because he wants them to learn what the reality of kingdom will actually look like, and it's not what they're expecting. And so Jesus sends them, and then verse 2, he tells them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden before. Untie it, bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, uh, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it, and he'll return it immediately once he's done. And so the two disciples went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. Someone there asked them, what are you doing untying this colt? And they told them that Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And then verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And that marks the beginning of the procession. Now, as we read through the story, everything about this procession and the way that Jesus is intentionally orchestrating it speaks of royalty. I mean, think of like the, the crowning of the king or the queen in, in England. It, it, this is like an ancient royal coronation scene, and, and, and it's set up that way very intentionally. Jesus chooses to ride 
into Jerusalem instead of walking with everyone else. He sits. It's a symbol of regal authority. Distinguishing himself from the crowds is a man of great dignity and honor and power. And then Jesus chooses to ride an unridden colt, meaning uh, 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 and a young animal that has never been used for labor before. And in the ancient world, this was a clear symbol. If you're using an animal that has never been used for labor before, then you are using it for a very specific purpose, for sacred purposes. So we see in the Old Testament that when the, the Ark of the Covenant needed to be returned to the temple, they used an animal to return it that had never worked before. Or when King Solomon was going to enter into the city to be anointed as king, sitting on the throne of his father, David, they use an animal to transport him that had never been worked before. And not only is it an unridden colt, but it is one that is clad with the cloaks of the people. And then the people kind of roll out an ancient red carpet as they put their garments on the ground and they go out into the fields to cut down leafy branches and and, and lay them out to mark the road for Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. This was a practice in the ancient world that was used to receive war heroes after they returned from a victory in battle. And this was a practice that would have echoed the prophetic imagery of the Old Testament that one day Jesus the Lord would return to Zion in victory and defeat all of Israel's enemies. And so it's no surprise, given all the symbolism, that the crowds are bubbling with fervor as they hail him as king in verse 9 and 10. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And notice the detail Mark says. The crowds were not singing, they were not chanting, they were not cheering, but they were shouting this, shouting it. And these words come from Psalm 118, which at that time was, was, was chock full of, of messianic overtones. It was this sense that the hopes of generations and centuries were welling up in the streets of Jerusalem that day, and they were finding voice in the chanting crowds. Everything about this scene shows us that it's an entrance that is fit for the long-awaited messianic king. The Messiah has come. He has finally arrived. And you can imagine the excitement of the disciples at this moment. We have been following him and we have been waiting for this moment the whole time. People had often noted throughout Jesus's life how he was different from anyone they had met before. He looked at people differently. He talked to people differently. He interacted with people differently. And his coming into Jerusalem was no different. One of the interesting things is that in the midst of this intentional display of messianic power, Jesus chooses to ride into Jerusalem on a young colt or a donkey, as we're told elsewhere, instead of a war horse. Meaning he is coming as king to profess peace, and he shows no intention of exercising force. That would have looked really strange amidst shouts of Hosanna, which means like save now, running through the city streets with revolutionary force. He didn't have the same air about him that other leaders had when they were greeted with crowds in such a triumphal manner. 
surely when people saw his face that day as he rode into the holy city, there would have been no impression from him of conceit or any feeling that he was better than anyone else. Part of the unexpected power of this savior was that he was to able to look at the crowds in the eyes to receive their worship and their praise without getting caught up in their expectations. He was king, but he was a king like no one had ever seen before. And it's this theme of unexpected kingship, of unexpected authority, of unexpected power that continues throughout the events of Holy Week. Jesus is anointed in chapter 14 as king, but he's anointed for burial. Jesus is hailed as king of the Jews in chapter 15, but it's written atop his cross. Jesus comes with power to save, chapter 15, but he is mocked by people as he hangs upon the cross, saying, you came to save us, but you can't even save yourself. And then Jesus is a king who receives the acknowledgement that he is son of God, finally at the very end of chapter 15. But it's only after he has breathed his last breath. You see, every step of the way from Palm Sunday to his death upon the cross, Mark wants us to be tuned into the fact that Jesus is a king like any other the world has ever seen. His power is expressed in the humility of a cult, and his throne is a cross. So the first thing we see in our passage is this unexpected power of Jesus. And the second thing we see is this unexpected patience of Jesus as he enters into the holy city. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the king, and the buzz of the city is undeniable. The expectations are running high, and then the result is profoundly anticlimactic. <laughs> we see in verse 11 that after all of this, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and goes into the temple, the heart of the city, and then he just looks around at everything. <laughs> he just looks around at the people. And it was already too late in the day, so then he goes home. He goes back to Bethany with the twelve to spend the night. I can only imagine what the disciples felt as they were walking home that evening: the confusion, the the disappointment, the the despair. Man, we thought this was the moment of the kingdom. Now we're just walking home as if it's any other day. I'm surely they thought at least Jesus would have healed somebody like like they'd never seen before. He would have given them a really rousing, inspirational speech to motivate the crowds to action. Or that he at least would have confronted some of the political leaders who had had them under their thumb all this time. But instead, what happens is Jesus just looks around the temple. He sees what is there and who is there. He observes what is happening. Then he patiently discerns the intentions and the motivations of people's hearts as they engage in that communal space. Here we are faced with the unexpected patience of an unexpected power. Jesus takes time to do what he is going to do in Holy Week. Yes, tomorrow Jesus is going to clear out the injustices of the temple with righteous anger. And the day after that, he's going to confront the hypocrisy of the religious authorities with prophetic truth-telling. And the day after that, he's going to curse the fig tree and warn of the fall of Jerusalem. And the day after that, he's going to meet with his disciples in the upper room and say, 
let me wash your feet. And if you don't let me wash your feet, you can't have anything to do with me. And the day after that, he's going to stand before Pilate and those that are mocking him. And he's not going to deny the fact that he is the king of the Jews. And the day after that, he's going to lie silent in the tomb. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus takes his time. He discerns what is happening in his people's hearts, what is needed. He does not act hastily or impulsively, but thoughtfully and intentionally and wisely. So that every action that is about to happen in Holy Week comes out of this place of discernment and prayer and thoughtfulness. On Palm Sunday, we meet the king who enters into Jerusalem as Prince of Peace who has the right to discern the hearts of his people. And I wonder if Jesus walked into your city today, what would he see? What would he hear? What would he discern? If Jesus walked into your place of worship today, into our service today, what would he see and what would he hear? And what would he discern? And if Jesus walked into your home this week, or into the inner recesses of your own heart and mind? What would he see? What would he hear? What would he notice? See, Jesus eventually confronts the corruptions of human society and the hardness of the human heart. But he always does so from a place of genuine understanding and deep care. He is patient and slow to anger. And he never plays out anyone else's agenda, no matter how powerful the crowds, no matter how wonderful their adulation, no, how, no, how, no matter how great their intentions. Jesus never plays out anybody else's agenda. He just patiently listens to his father and does what is best, what he is called to. So I want to end by asking what I think this passage brings upon us is a very personal and practical question for each of us. It's a question that Jesus asked his disciples, James and John, what do you want me to do for you? It's a question that Jesus asked blind Bartimaeus when he called out, son of David, have mercy on me. He said, what do you want me to do for you? The unexpected power and patience of Jesus on Palm Sunday invites us to ask the question, what are my expectations of Jesus' power? What is my hoped-for agenda for Jesus? What is it that I want him to do for me or for my family or for my city and for my nation? What do I think Jesus should be doing right now in the midst of everything that's going on? Because if Palm Sunday tells us anything, it's that we can believe that Jesus is the rightful king, that he is powerful and he's mighty to save, but have misaligned expectations of what his power looks like in the world. Or how his power will manifest itself in our lives and in our church and in our city. What do you want me to do for you, says Jesus, before he rides into Jerusalem? And so as we conclude, I invite you to take a moment to be honest with Jesus as you ponder that question. Maybe you have expectations that do not align with what Jesus' power looks like. 
Maybe you can invite Jesus to graciously adjust your expectations this holy week. Maybe you have really good expectations aligned with Jesus, but they're unmet expectations at this point in your life. Maybe you can invite Jesus to share his understanding and his patience with you this holy week. And maybe you're just somebody that finds, I, I don't know what I expect of Jesus. I, I don't know if I have many expectations of Jesus. And maybe this Holy Week, you can invite him to show you his empowering presence in your life. And that he would grow in you expectations that align with what he wants to do and what he wants to give you this week. Let me pray for us before we then recite the Apostles' Creed together. Lord Jesus, let us recover our sight as blind Bartimaeus recovered his sight in your presence. We want to see you as you really are this holy week. As you reveal yourself in power and humility, in might and mercy, in glory and in generosity. So help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to taste and see that you are mighty to save. Help us to taste and to see that you are at work in our lives and in the world to bring about the redemption that has been planned for ages. And help us to find joy in your presence as our King. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.